This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 203rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is one of the top up-and-coming actresses in the business. A 29-year-old who burst onto the scene as Marnie on Lena Dunham's HBO series Girls, which ran from 2012 through 2017, in the midst of which she also starred in the 2014 NBC musical production Peter Pan Live, which, oddly enough, led to her first part in a motion picture, the female lead in Jordan Peele's 2017 feature directorial debut, Get Out, a horror film with comedic elements that cost just $4.5 million dollars, but grossed $250 million more than that worldwide, proved the year's best-reviewed film, and has been the toast of the awards circuit this season. I'm talking about the lovely Allison Williams. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Matt Bellany, our editorial director, to dissect the nominations for the 90th Academy Awards that were announced on Tuesday. Matt, thanks for joining us. No problem. So we've had a few days now to digest the Oscar nominations, and I think now we can step back and look at some of the big takeaways, the big themes going into phase two. And I thought we would maybe begin with the fact that the two likeliest contenders for the Best Picture Oscar seem to be The Shape of Water and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, both of which are Fox Searchlight films. At a time when Fox Searchlight is sort of caught up in this whole Disney acquisition of Fox, and who knows what the future may be. So as they go forward with having to wage two big campaigns in phase two. What do you think the outlook there is? It's an interesting question. I mean, people that I speak to at Searchlight, they first off say, thank God <laughs> that this is the year right. that we have two best picture front runners. I mean, they haven't for the past couple of years. They're usually in the mix. Yes. And of course they won for Birdman, but that's the first thing they say. And the second is, oh my God, we have two best picture front runners. So they really are going to have to decide on the campaigns for both. You want to push both the best you can, but at some point they're going to have to think about maybe making a choice and going all in on the one that they think they might have the best chance of winning with. Or even maybe a split of some sort because it seems like Guillermo del Toro has really emerged in the best director race and actually Martin McDonough, the director of Three Billboards, was not nominated for it. So if Shape of Water can have best director, perhaps Three Billboards can be the the one in for the picture race, but, you know, I guess they each have an Achilles heel in the best picture race, which is that The Shape of Water comes in with 13 nominations, the most by far this year, which which is great, except La La Land had 14 last year and still lost, but it, it ran into a little bit of a problem with the Screen Actors Guild by not, like La La Land, getting nominated for the Best Ensemble Award. Without that nomination, no film in 22 years has won Best Picture, so that's a little weird. That is a little weird, and I think the the way that Searchlight is approaching this, from what I understand, is that they are having two separate campaigns. They are treating these films as if they were the only film in the race 
from the perspective of the people working on that particular mm -hmm. film. So they are going to pick the strengths and weaknesses. If, like you said, they really feel that they can win that best director prize for Guillermo del Toro, they're going to go for that. And if maybe the people working on three billboards feel like they can leverage the support from particular branches to get best picture, they're going to go for that. I personally, yeah. I think that there may be a little bit of cross. I, mean, I don't want to say cross out, but the fact that they're both indie oriented specialty pick, I think that may hurt them, especially going up against films like Get Out and Dunkirk, which are much more have different constituencies let's and made say. a lot more money. Yes, both of them did. And I personally think that the dark horse that not enough people are saying is a potential winner is Get Out. Yeah. I mean, everywhere I go, people that I have talked to, they always say, man, Get Out is my favorite film of the year. And I just think when push comes to shove in the environment we're in right now, a film that really says something about the moment, I think is typically the one that people tend to, to check that, that number one box. Or even if it's not the number one box, you don't have to be the number one on the Academy ballot because like only one other group, the Producers Guild, they have this preferential ballot, which basically rewards consensus as opposed to passion. So even if Three Billboards or Shape of Water have more number one votes, if they're a love or hate type movie, they're one or they're number five, whereas if everybody's putting Get Out at two or three, Get Out could still win. That's what we believe happened last year with Moonlight. So it's interesting, and you do mention that it's popular in a lot of places. At the Producers Guild Awards of, about a week ago, Norman Lear came out, and he is not who you would imagine the target demographic for Get Out was, and he gave the most gushing love letter of an introduction to Jordan Peele that you can imagine. And so I think that struck a lot of people. It wasn't the first time he'd done that, but Nevertheless, with the preferential ballot at the PGA, guess what won? The Shape of Water. So it was a weird right. situation. Well, but, but the overall makeup of the Academy is different than the Producers Guild. The fact that the Academy has admitted so many new members over the past three, four years, yep. I think actually may help get out because those people are younger, they are more diverse, mm -hmm. and they are less beholden to the quote-unquote old ways of the Academy where the most serious and important and perhaps British film <laughs> is the one that we pick. Right. This is an American filmmaker, a younger filmmaker, a movie that is a horror movie that is of the moment. I think the racial themes help yeah. it in this yeah. case, and I think that the younger Academy members may go for it. I'm with you. You know, on paper, it, it shouldn't happen. Horror movies, it's been not since, like, Silence of the Lambs. You know, everyone years. says that, but is Silence of the Lambs really a horror movie? I, I, I mean, I guess you could classify it that way, but I always thought of it as, like, a, you know, a kind of psychological thriller. Yeah. I mean, when, when has a real horror movie won Best Picture? Well, I guess, what would you call No Country for Old Men? I would also call that a psychological, psychological thriller. thriller. I mean, the reality is there really hasn't been a out-and-out out horror movie that's won because— Did The Exorcist win? No. Hmm. Lost the Sting. And really, you go back to the, the ones that inspired all the others, Frankenstein, Dracula. They were always treated, even by the people that made them, as B-movie fillers. They were never seen in the light that we always associate with the Oscars. Hmm. And so I think now it would be a, a pretty big game-changer. And also the fact that it came out— during the Oscar weekend a year ago. Movies, right. Silence of the Lambs actually also came out that early in the year, but 
it's very rare to be remembered. I mean, maybe they should incorporate that in in their campaign. This could be really the first true horror movie to win Best Picture. Mm -hmm. That's pretty compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And for a genre that is in some ways powering the industry right now. I mean, the fact that Get Out did the hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office Mm -hmm. should say something to people who want to be gainfully employed in this business going forward. So, you know, you referenced that the Academy has admitted a lot of new people over the last couple of years. And we are, based on the, the number of invites that went out and looking at sort of analyzing those, it looks like 20% of the roughly, you know, approximately 8,000 people who are in the Academy today were not in the Academy two years ago. And so it does make it a totally different group than any of these earlier groups that we historically have turned to for clues. And I wonder what you think, again, with this preferential ballot, how that could affect a movie like Lady Bird, which, again, at the moment, a movie that is about women, directed by a woman, dealing with things like that, could that benefit from the fact that there are now there was a concerted effort to bring in more young women in particular? Yeah, I think the diversity push probably had a a big impact on the nominations. I don't know if it'll end up tipping the scale on the winners, but... Lady Bird is, to me at least, the type of film that gets nominated. It is a kind of smaller indie mother-daughter coming-of-age type movie. It didn't surprise me that it did that well, but I just remember over the you know past 10, 15 years, there's always that moment when the nominations come out where it's like, damn, I wish this person would have been nominated. And in the past, that would have probably been Greta Gerwig. Right who would not have been nominated for directing because it traditionally the director's branch is so male dominated and Lady Bird is not a big serious movie like you often see get nominated for directing. So it's really nice that the the Academy has changed to the point where they can nominate and recognize a filmmaker like this. Right. She's only the fifth woman ever to be nominated for Best Director. Jordan Peele's only the fifth person of color to be nominated for Best Director. And really by those two things happening, those two nominations coming through, the Academy dodged what might have been the equivalent of the Oscar So White nightmare that they had for the two years prior to last season. But they now find themselves in a similar sort of hot water because now the issue, as much as diversity, is Me Too. And while they did not nominate James Franco, as a lot of people, including me, thought would probably happen because all the stuff about him came out late in voting, it still was enough, I think, to take him down. But you do have Kobe Bryant as a nominee, and he went through his stuff a few years ago before this became a cultural movement. Do you think that Me Too could manifest itself in the results somehow with any of these categories? I think that's a good question. I think that is the elephant in the room, so to speak, at the Oscars, is how much is the current moment going to impact people's choices? I think, like a lot of things, it's nuanced, and the answer is probably yes and no. Mm -hmm. The Christopher Plummer nomination is certainly due to the fact that he stepped in when this movie was nearly derailed by Kevin Spacey and by all accounts has a great performance. Maybe not something that would have been recognized otherwise, but certainly he's in there for that reason. I think at the Oscars, I wouldn't be surprised if it helped female writers and filmmakers. The Mm -hmm. cinematographer of Mudbound, Rachel Morrison, wouldn't be surprised if she won because that is first ever to be nominated. First woman ever to be nominated. And that, that, I mean, it's crazy that that's the case, 
But I think that's a nice opportunity to reward the first in that category. Wouldn't be surprised if Greta Gerwig won for her screenplay Mm -hmm. because of that fact and the fact that it's a great screenplay. But I think that in the top categories, are people going to vote for a particular film because of the moment we're in? I don't know. Well, you you actually pointed out something on Twitter the other day that I think is very perceptive and, and smart in that. Casey Affleck, as a result of the whole Me Too movement, first of all, probably wouldn't have even been nominated, let alone won last year. But the tradition is the best actor of the previous year announces best actress of the next year. He has bowed out of doing that. And you suggested a way that the Academy might seize that opportunity to sort of show its sensitivity to what's going on. Yeah, I mean, my suggestion is basically that they bring all the Harvey accusers out on stage to present that award. I actually don't think that will happen because I think the Casey Affleck people will probably prevent it from happening. How do they do that? They're out of the mix. Yeah, I think they can they can say, listen, don't do this. Because what it would do is it would create a link between him and the Harvey accusers. And that's not something that they want. And frankly, I mean, we don't. The, the Casey Affleck situation is much different than the Harvey Weinstein situation or any of some of these other instances. So I don't think that the Academy will do that, but I think they will certainly have a moment with perhaps at the beginning of the show, perhaps for best picture. Right. I don't know how they're going to choose to handle it, but they would be stupid yeah. if they didn't oh, have yeah. some big emotional moment to acknowledge what's going on. Well, I kind thing. of suspect the reason that other award shows haven't had that moment yet is because the Academy has probably asked those people to wait and have the Oscar moment where that happens be a very special big one. If they're doing it at every award show, if they're doing it at the Critics' Choice, it really kind of sucks yeah. the air out of the next moment. Well, they have had they have had their moments. I mean, if you look at what Oprah did at the Golden Globes and if you look at the all-female presenters at the SAG Awards, I mean, this has been a, a theme throughout awards season. But I mean the actual victims of yes, Harvey. Yes. The, ones the alleged that, victims yes. have not assembled at any yes. of these shows. And I think that the Oscars are probably going to have a big, big yeah. role in that. But probably also they will give a nod to what happened at the end of last year's Oscars <laughs> with the envelope gate. I would not be surprised at all if the beginning of the Oscars show somehow involves Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, and the Moonlight folks who everybody feels did not really get their moment last year. Also, Warren and Faye, I think, are a little pissed because people left that telecast thinking they had screwed up. So I would guess that Jimmy would and the producers, DeLuca and Todd and the Academy, I think they're, they've enough water has gone under the bridge that they can now sort of laugh about it, don't you think? I think everyone can laugh about it except the PwC accountant, <laughs> who is Brian probably, Cullinan. yeah, Brian Cullen. I think he's probably still in yeah. seclusion somewhere. Yes. Off uh, of Twitter. Yeah, no longer on Twitter. No, no longer, longer using smartphones. <laughs> no longer taking selfies. You know, or maybe they'll incorporate him. Maybe he'll, he'll be the first person out on so. stage. Because he's like Steve Bartman. At a certain point, you feel sorry for the guy. Like mm-hmm. he, he didn't kill anybody. He did not kill anyone. He just created the biggest snafu in award <laughs> show history. Years of <laughs> <laughs> but... But I do, I do think that they will acknowledge it at the beginning. Kimmel's already starting to do, you know, promos for the show that incorporate that stuff. Yes. So, and Warren Beatty was in one of the promos. So, if he's doing promos, right. then he's going to be in the show in some way. Right. Last few things. Let's talk about the fact that not only has the influx of new members over the last couple of years addressed, you know, matters of race and gender, but the Academy's also become a much more international organization with tons of people in far-flung places all over the world many of 
whom are not getting the opportunities that members in L.A. and New York get to just go to screenings all the time. So if you're living in Laos, you're not having the opportunity to go see these movies on the big screen. Is there really a big Laotian I'm, contingent? <laughs> I would in have the to Academy get back now? to you on that. <laughs> I think it's it's mostly Europe, right? I don't know. They've really made a concerted effort. They've got people from Thailand and Hong Kong and all over the place, wherever there are great filmmakers. But the the question is, does that have any implication? Like, do you now have to be a movie that plays well on screeners to prevail? Like, is Dunkirk going to fly in Laos? That's a good question. I I don't know the answer, but, but I have heard an interesting theory. One of the consultants mentioned to me that the thing nobody's talking about is how well British films did in this Oscar season and the surprise we all saw was Phantom Thread yep. getting six nominations and uh, what's the actor's name? Oh, sorry. Well, and you're talking about Leslie Manville. Leslie Manville getting a supporting actress right. now. And someone that none of the LA-based Oscar yep. people were talking about. And and he was saying because that movie did so well, Dunkirk because Darkest, uh, Hour. Darkest Hour did so well that that it shows that there is a large contingent of British voters now that are new. And there's some countervailing theories on that. I mean, obviously, those films didn't do as well at the BAFTAs, which is Weird. all Brits. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you never know if this yeah. theory is correct or not. And the Academy has always kind of loved British films mm-hmm. as well. So it's not like this is a new thing. But if this is true, it does show that the way these films are positioned and marketed needs to reflect a little bit more of the globalism. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes a lot more expensive for these awards campaigns if you do have to reach people in so many different ways now. But to the point about screeners being important, that would also suggest, I I would think, that if you're a movie on Netflix, it's a good thing for you, or Amazon, because growing numbers of people have access to those services. Netflix, for instance, is in all but four countries, I think, in the entire world. And yet, both Netflix and Amazon's biggest contenders, Mudbound and The Big Sick, respectively, did not make the top races. Well, I think there is a lingering bias against Netflix, because they don't do theatrical releases for their films outside of you know qualifying runs. Mm-hmm. I still do think, now obviously Netflix got eight nominations yep. total, so it's not like voters are not voting right. for Netflix movies and they support their films. Mm-hmm. They put the filmmakers out there and do a campaign. So I'm not saying that they're not voting for Netflix, but I do think among the, the kind of traditional Academy member who likes to go to the screening and likes to see what the box office is, that there is a feeling that the Netflix movies, they're not on the same level because they don't get that. And Amazon does. But then again, the theory hits a roadblock because Big Sick did not get a Best Picture nomination and really only got screenplay. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Right. I mean, Big Sick, I thought, had an uphill battle from the beginning just because comedies traditionally are not the Academy's bag. And, and one that came out way back in the summer. Yeah, and even it did great at the box office. It was a Sundance movie, but at the end of the day, it's a romantic comedy, a kind of you know dark right. romantic comedy, which is a great film, but I wasn't that surprised to see it not get a Best Picture nom. And in some ways, I think things may change, but overall, things sort of stay the same because the movies that it seemed like people were giving a hard time to, they were sort of... You know, supposedly this is the edgier academy, the more diverse academy. They're going to do things differently. And yet two movies that were getting knocked for being very classic, traditional sort of Oscar bait, The Post and Darkest Hour, both wound up as Best Picture nominees. So Yeah, but The Post didn't do as well as a lot of people thought it would. I mean, it only got two nominations. And, you know, the fact that Tom Hanks didn't get nominated, Spielberg didn't get nominated, the writers didn't get nominated. I think that's a, an interesting sign because that is... 
that is Oscar movie with a capital O and a capital M. And it's engineered to appeal to the, that older moviegoer. And I was surprised. I liked it a lot. I thought yeah. it was a good film. It is a good film. And I was surprised it didn't get more. So last thing, we are now really heading into phase two. The voters don't get their ballots or get to vote online until mid-February, but they're thinking about it now. People are starting to mobilize their next wave of their campaigns. So at the end of January, and we'll really emphasize that because a lot can still change, what's your read on the biggest categories? Let's go category by category, starting with, let's say, Best Supporting Actress. You've got the nominees... Mary J. Blige from Mudbound, Allison Janney from My Tanya, Leslie Manville from Phantom Thread, Laurie Metcalf from Lady Bird, and Octavia Spencer from The Shape of Water. I'll leave the real prediction to you, <laughs> but I'll just go by my gut and what I've seen. Yep. Isn't Allison Janney like she a lock? Well, it seems that way, although Scott Rudin will not go down without a fight on, in the instance of Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird. And it's possible, but I, I would certainly thank Allison Janney. I mean, I think at this point, Allison Janney would probably win a Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> if the denizens of Hollywood could vote for it, right. because they tend to vote for her for anything. Although and, this is her first Oscar nomination. Right, but how many Emmys does she have? She's winning Emmys for Mom right, on yeah. CBS. Like, <laughs> that that's, I mean, nothing, no offense to that, but that's right. not typically a, an right. awards show. Right. I mean, she's great in I, Tanya. I, right. I don't want to knock her right, at all. Right, right. But I just think she's one of those people. She's so nice. Right. She's a, an actress who did not become famous until late 30s, early right. 40s. She is a working person's actress, and everybody loves her. And what a colorful character, playing a real person yeah. with a bird. With a bird on her shoulder. <laughs> I remember seeing that movie at Toronto right. and thinking, okay, she will go the distance. Yes. All right, supporting actor, Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project, my favorite movie, may it rest in peace otherwise. <laughs> Woody Harrelson, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Richard Jenkins, The Shape of Water. Christopher Plummer, All the Money in the World. And Sam Rockwell, also Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I would say Sam Rockwell, unless the Woody Harrelson contingent siphons off votes. Mm -hmm. and Or there's such a groundswell for Christopher Plummer right. because he stepped in for Kevin Spacey and did such a great job. I think the fact that Christopher Plummer already has an Oscar right. and actually won one not that Very long recently, ago. Yeah. If this were sort of a, a chance to reward an entire career right. by, by doing this, I think maybe he would have a better chance. But he's already won. Sam Rockwell has not. Right. And he's won all the other ones. So I think you got to vote I'm him. with you on that. And I, I will just add that I cannot imagine that Jimmy Kimmel will not seize the moment when they bring out Christopher Plummer to present something to say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Spacey, and to just see the reaction. Wow, you should be a you should be a monologue writer. <laughs> yeah, me and Bruce Valanche. All right, best actress: Sally Hawkins, The Shape of Water; Frances McDormand, Three Billboards; Margot Robbie, I Tanya; Saoirse Ronan, in Lady Bird; Meryl Streep, The Post. I mean, isn't Frances, Frances McDormand? Yeah, that's kind of hers to lose, right? Yes, but she did win before twenty-one years ago for Fargo, and she's up against. I guess you can never count out Meryl Streep. And then you have three much younger actresses sort of on the rise. You got Sally Hawkins for the movie that has the most nominations. You got Margot Robbie for a movie she produced. And then Saoirse Ronan, a third nomination by the age of just 23. Yeah, but I just think, you know, it's interesting. They always say that the best way to do these Oscar campaigns is to make sure the Academy members are seeing you out and right. about, shaking hands, going to events, doing press interviews, the whole right. thing. There is an exception that proves every rule, right. and I think the exception this year is Frances McDormand. Yes. She does nothing, nothing and keeps winning, right. and it seems to be working for her. Very few people can get away with that. I think she, Christian Bale for The Fighter, Monique for Precious, but you got to be so good. And I guess people feel she really was. I'm a little sorry that Margot Robbie's not 
Yeah, Quentin Margot Moore. Robbie's great, yeah. and you know I'm sure she'll get her chance right. again. Tanya the, Harding didn't help her. <laughs> no, Tanya Harding probably did help her. The fact you that think? Tanya Harding was like on board with the portrayal and not right. out there trashing it. We had a nice cover of them. Uh, yes, we did. But you know, Frances McDormand is essentially telling the Academy that she is too cool for them, right. and that's exactly what artists want to hear yeah. if you are too cool for me i want to vote for you right and i honestly don't think she would give a shit one way or the other so <laughs> no i mean i, I think she probably Maybe she definitely privately. shows up to get yeah, the, she awards. Goes to the awards she's ceremonies. not boycotting these ceremonies that's for sure <laughs> she's going to she's showing up right. and saying thank you and being right. very polite right. uh, she's just not out there shaking hands at cocktail parties right okay best actor timothy chalamet who at 22 is the youngest nominee in that category in 78 years Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Thread, who historically has been able to cough and get nominated. Daniel Kaluuya, Get Out, first time in many years that we've had two nominees, him and Chalamet, who are in their 20s in that category. Gary Oldman, Darkest Hour, and then Denzel Washington, who had like no buzz going into this for Roman J. Israel Esquire. All right, can we talk about Denzel for a second? <laughs> I want to know if Academy members actually watched that film or if they just wrote his name in. People love Denzel. People love Denzel. But did Sony even send out screeners of that film? I think I got one, but I'm did also, you? I mean, I get them as a journalist. I don't know. I, I have to assume the Academy members got I, it. I, I guess so. But yeah. did you hear anyone talking about it? Did you hear anyone saying, oh, I, I watched my Roman J. Israel screener and <laughs> Esquire, please. Don't Esquire, forget sorry. Esquire. And it's amazing. Like, I, I think Denzel is probably a little, you know, curious how this I, happened. I agree. I think he has, he owes some flowers to James Franco. And, true. That, uh, that's true. And I think. He probably took the Franco oh, slot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And maybe people just said, oh, I can't vote for that guy. Mm, who else is there? <laughs> well, Denzel's you know, always good. <laughs> but you know who must feel pretty awful that in this year he couldn't get nominated? And I, just, I think he's taken for granted, and it's not nice, is Tom Hanks. This is 17 years since he was last nominated. Yeah, what's up with that? He's great in, in that film. People just uh, think it makes it look so easy that they think he's not trying that hard. Well, he's also playing a character in Ben Bradley that has been played yes. before and you know jason robards won an won oscar an right oscar. yeah all the presidents met. so maybe the you know the academy members are thinking you know i know i know ben bradley and you're no ben bradley <laughs> but but i don't know i mean it's he's so great and so likable and and, and i just nothing against denzel right. trust me no. i am i am team denzel but i think that you got to see the movies in right. order to vote for people and i'm wondering how many people actually watch this one so your answer though is oldman I actually think that Timothy Chalamet has a chance in this category. Are you gonna? Are you gonna I'm not. Up? I don't. I am not in the prognostication business. <laughs> unlike God. you. Thankfully, I Thankfully, have a job. Thankfully, have you for that. But but I. I mean, it'll probably be Gary Oldman. But right. Yeah. If I there agree. was a surprise, yeah. I think there is the people who love "Call Me by Your Name" really yes. love it. Yes. I mean, I talked to our reviews editor John Frosch yeah. about oh this. My God. He is like, yeah. you know, if there was a "Call Me by Your Name" yes. stock, yes. he would buy it ten times over. True. So, so I think that that this is the chance for those people to vote for someone and mobilize and maybe get a win out of it because it's not winning Best Picture. No, and once in a while, something like that happens. I mean, people forget it's only been 15 years since Adrian Brody did just that. He had not won anything until the Oscars. Everybody was sure it was Daniel Day-Lewis, who, by the way, is here again, or Jack Nicholson, and Adrian Brody comes out and, and won. Now, by the way, if Adrian Brody accepted the Oscar today the way that he did then with the Halle Berry aggressive kiss. I'm not sure he would have made it off the stage, but that was that was then. This is yeah. That. that I mean, you could go back and yeah. talk about Oscar moments that will never ever happen now. Right, right. But 
if it happens, great. If not, Gary Oldman is a fine actor yeah, and it's a right. fine performance and the movie has its fans. It actually did really well at the box office. It's yeah. still going strong, but yeah. of all the Oscar movies, it's the one that's benefiting the most, it seems, from the Oscar attention. Right. Last two, Best Director, Christopher Nolan Dunkirk. This is the first time he's ever gotten an Oscar nominated for anything. Jordan Peele, Get Out, Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird, Paul Thomas Anderson, Phantom Thread, and Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water. Hmm. I think that it's Guillermo del Toro, and I'm going to make an analogy that you may agree with or not. I think it's the Danny Boyle win here because you have a filmmaker who's always been an exciting, interesting filmmaker who's done a lot of genre pictures that people have admired, but it's never hit that wheelhouse of the Academy's taste. Right. And here you have a film that is just inside the wheelhouse where, yes, it's a fantasy with a fish monster and everything, but it's also <laughs> a love story. And it makes a comment about you know inclusion and the era of the times and everything like that. And, and I think that it's a chance to reward an auteur type, mm -hmm. just like when Danny Boyle did Slumdog Millionaire. And this is a guy who had been working for years in films that were exciting and interesting. But he then did a movie that was inside the Academy's wheelhouse and had themes that people could get behind and reward. And lo and behold, he goes and wins. So I think that's that's what's going on here. And that I think he'll win again. I agree with you. And I just am kind of stunned by the turnaround because for most of the season, we, uh, at least I thought it was looking like Christopher Nolan. And I thought you know, just the ambition and the size and scale of, of that movie, Dunkirk, is incredible, but he does not benefit from the contrast in campaigning styles with between him and Del Toro. Del Toro's the most gregarious guy you'll ever meet. And Nolan, there's not you know, this is not illegal, but he just is not a particularly warm guy. Well, neither are his movies, and that's always right. the knock on them. Right. I happen to love his movies. Yes. He's probably you know up there with my favorite filmmakers. Yeah. And he has done press. He's done press, and he's done more than he usually yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that probably helped him get the nomination. But you know, who knows? I mean, I don't know if people will say this is Christopher Nolan's best film. Some critics did, but I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. I think it might just be that the that Shape of Water is perceived as a more emotional film. And a challenge. Well, but it's, it's not more complex or challenging than than Dunkirk. No, I mean nobody does more with what he puts on screen right. than Nolan. I mean, it, and and he has a studio, Warner Brothers, behind him that is explaining very well to people exactly right. how hard it was to pull off this film. So I don't know. It's I don't know what it is. The last few years, especially since they expanded the best picture category there have been more splits between picture and director where they they seem to be rewarding people in the director category for the most complex challenge pulling it off pulling it off so you had alfonso Cuaron for gravity a number of these were well, damien chazelle well, but he all right yeah i was about to say he won best picture but he didn't win best he didn't picture. Win best no picture. yeah but so, that was but the know, fact i think that the chazelle win yeah was holy cow right. this guy's 30 years old and he made a musical that made 400 million dollars right and you know, and people love. That's so true. that's the. It may not have been the movie that, you know, that touched most people right. emotionally, but it was the most impressive. I think Best Director has turned into the most impressive feat. So maybe we shouldn't write off Nolan. Maybe not. I mean, I don't know why I'm thinking that he doesn't have as much momentum as Del Toro does. Maybe the number of nominations and the fact that his movie came out so long ago. But what I've what I've learned in the last few years, and I maybe should have known it before, but I've been reminded, the number of nominations. It's misinterpreted. It's not like the entire Academy votes in every category. So our, the best editing nominees are chosen by the editing branch and on and on and on. The only thing that everybody votes for is picture. So the fact that a movie gets the most nominations does not 
But it gives it momentum. It give and it's a nice thing to and put on your poster. And it's a narrative. And it might what it might do is it might cause people who haven't seen it to say, "Oh crap, I better see this one." That's true. Well, last category then that we'll talk about is best picture. You've got Call Me by Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. All right. So as I said, I have an un popular untrendy view of this and i i truly do believe that there are five movies that could conceivably win best picture i mean obviously shape of water and three billboards are the front runners mm-hmm. i could see perhaps in the moment right now that people could want ladybird to win right. or even the post right. to win but my underdog pick would be get out for right. the reason that i said earlier is that wherever i go it's the movie that i hear the most about right. and even though it came out a year ago, people still say that is the movie of 2017 that will be remembered in 10, 20 years. And I think when push comes to shove, voters tend to vote for picture from that perspective. What is the movie that I think is important right. and says something and is the thing that that I want this industry to stand for? I think you're absolutely right in the logic, but I am just scared to make that call myself because I don't have the the stats and the precursor awards and things oh, to nothing. support it. I have no but, evidence But, but I at share all. your gut feeling. It does feel like that's a movie people can get excited about. And I don't know that there there is respect and admiration for Shape of Water oh, and Three Billboards. Fans. People do. Yeah. I mean, people like those movies a lot. I mean, I don't think they would have done so well right. in nominations without that. But I don't think people are saying that Three Billboards is the movie of our time. Right. And there are places where those can all be recognized and still give Best Picture to somebody else. I mean, as we said, Three Billboards is, by in all likelihood, winning Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor. Shape of Water is, in all likelihood, winning Best Director. So it's not impossible for, for Get Out, which transitions nicely into what you will hear after we say goodbye to Matt, which is a conversation with Allison Williams. So, Matt Bellany, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now for my conversation with Allison Williams. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter in Los Angeles, Williams and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. What it was like growing up the daughter of TV newsman Brian Williams and, after embarking on a career in acting, struggling to be seen as her own person. How, during her time as an undergraduate at Yale, she began making videos for the web, hoping to catch the industry's attention, and how one video did just that prompting comedy titan Judd Apatow to reach out to her not long after he had signed on as an executive producer of Girls. How she then wound up cast in the part of Marnie on Girls, figured out how to navigate her character and the celebrity that came with the job, and then personally and professionally handled the six-season run of the show and its end. Why, unlike many other TV actors, she did not appear in films during her hiatuses from Girls, but instead held out far longer than many advised for a truly special big-screen opportunity and why she felt that Jordan Peele's offer of a part that both acknowledged and then savaged her existing screen persona was just that. How she feels about the prospect of performing on Broadway, starring in a movie version of Girls, and making a sequel to Get Out, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. We always begin by asking our guests where they were born and raised and what their folks do for a living. You have a more interesting answer than no, many. No, I, I reject that. <laughs> I think everyone's answers to this is always interesting to me. 
I was born and raised, I was born in Stamford, Connecticut, but I was raised in New Canaan, Connecticut, with the exception of two years in Washington, D.C., when my father was a White House correspondent under Bill Clinton's reign. Yeah, so my dad is a is an anchorman and journalist named Brian Williams, and more importantly, personally, yes. a great dad and the best guy. Yeah. And my mom, and he met because my mom was a TV news producer. He fell in love with her voice in his ear. And then he also <laughs> fell in love with her when he saw her. And then it took a little bit of convincing. Um, you an only child? No, I have a younger brother who is a sportscaster. Nice. And he is, it is, he's so good. He's on SNY in New York. It's uncanny to watch him. It's like my dad, it's like those new movies where they're using CG to make right. people look like young versions <laughs> of themselves. It's very very weird so many like genetics are just really powerful Amazing. as it turns out so it's well, a family look, of makeup wearers I was gonna say, well you don't look dissimilar you have a interest there's definitely a interesting resemblance well, yeah there's yeah. there's only so much i can do about that and also i'm honored <laughs> no I mean, yeah it's, it's a good looking it's, guy yeah and my mom is beautiful and yeah. super smart so they both hope i take after the other one which nice. is exactly as it should be so from what I've read, there was a particular VHS that we can thank for your interest in acting. Is that true? There are several. Okay. Wizard of Oz, okay. Peter Pan, okay. and Mary Poppins. Was that the one you were Yeah. Well, what to? was it about Peter Pan? I think there was some aspect of the fact like people can do multiple characters. Right? Yeah. Well, that definitely, because there's overlapping performances, the same actor will play different roles in that Mary Martin, Peter Pan version. And the same was true for The Wizard of Oz. So in a way, it was actually a really good way of describing to a little kid what it means yeah. to be an actress yeah. because you were watching one person portray multiple people over the course of a single VHS tape experience. Right. And this was young. Young, very young. And between that and just my natural predilection for performance which is a recurring theme here as well <laughs> i just sort of my parents say they knew before i did because i didn't know what it was called or what it entailed they kind of just looked at each other and they were like oh god <laughs> this is undeniable right. she's an actress and so then once i was able to express that desire to them they issued a ruling very very early on that said you cannot do this with our blessing until you graduate from college. So then it became kind of a hobby that I did. I was in plays and stuff like that. Obsessively like loved it or, in school yeah. or a summer camp or whatever. But I stayed focused on my schoolwork. And I think that was really smart of them because I think those extra four years of incubation, especially the years between 18 and 22, were absolutely crucial. This can be a mind-bending business, whether in success you find this weird kind of attention and what does it mean? The answer is nothing. <laughs> it comes with, you know, restaurant reservations or whatever, right. but it doesn't mean anything <laughs> at all about your character or the things that really matter. And not in success, there's a lot of failure. And so you need thick skin and you need to have dealt with failure and you need to learn how to just know yourself enough to be able to live with yourself when other people don't think you're right for something, which again means nothing. So I think that was absolutely crucial. And it solidified as I got older during my summer jobs, I was a production assistant and a stand-in and all of these other things just to be around sets. And I realized how lucky I was to have that perspective when I started Girls and had my first day as an actual Well, let's, actress. before we even yeah. go too into that, you spent those years, 18 to 22, in my hometown of New Haven at yes. Yale. What did you major in there? And while you were there, how did you think the the process would work after you graduated? I know that it was not, you know, things may have happened in a different way than anyone could have imagined. But while you're there, what did you, what did you think the next steps were going to be? 
Well, I majored in English because it gave me the most freedom as a major, and I loved English. But while I was there, there are all these requirements, and everyone always drags their feet, and everyone has the same arc with them, which is that you resent them initially, and then you end up loving the classes you take because right. you can take some of them as credit D fail, which means that this whole the school of perfectionists, of type yes. A yeah. overachievers, right. actually gives themselves a slight break where you can kind of get an A, B, or C without anyone really noticing, right. and you can just absorb the knowledge. How novel a concept is that <laughs> to just be there to learn rather than to achieve? Um I always was sort of more in that camp because as an actor, I knew my GPA wasn't going to matter to anybody. <laughs> and to this day, I don't remember what it was. It wasn't, you know, 4.0 that I know. <laughs> so I loved anthropology and archaeology. And so towards the end of my college career, I started taking more classes in that realm. And to this day, when, if I go back to school, it will probably be for archaeological anthropology. I cannot stop loving it. And I read that you were saying you might want to go back to yeah I miss it every day honestly yeah, yeah cool anything that feels like homework makes me really happy anything <laughs> I'm serious like I just I miss sitting in a classroom and just my only job for that hour to be to absorb information I didn't know you did do extracurriculars there though right I mean there yes. were and some of which later proved valuable yes so right while I was there and this was like 2008 9 10 I started getting involved with the people who were making digital content at Yale. And there was this one guy in particular who was a music genius and also kind of a producer, and his name was Kurt Schneider. And there was this singer named Sam Shui, and the two of them were making these amazing videos. One of them went super viral. He was, they, it was a Michael Jackson medley, and there were like six of Sam on one stage, and he was singing with himself. And <laughs> so I, I sort of started working with them on stuff and learning about how video performed online and sort of like learning about that world, it seemed so foreign to me. And so then by the time I graduated, I had this idea where if I could make videos that had all the ingredients I had learned to make a video go mini viral enough, I could just send it to people to say like, I'm alive, I exist, yeah, here's me in a video. Right, because you don't have a reel. I didn't right. have any actual work right. to show anybody. Right. So after I graduated, to answer your previous question, I had never imagined my trajectory. I had no idea how this worked. I had been around actors enough as a, you know, all of those other jobs, an intern, an assistant, a PA, well, can we whatever. we just quickly note that it sounds like the thing, they were pretty cool summer jobs, right? Yeah. Who were you yeah. the assistant okay. for? Okay, so the, in order of chronological right. jobs, my first job on a film set was my mom's cousin used to produce movies with Robert Altman. And his name is Josh Astrakhan. And they were getting ready to make A Prairie Home Companion, which was actually yes. Altman's last yeah. movie. And so I asked him if I could come work on the set. And they put me in the office initially. I drove out to Minnesota with my mom. I moved in with friends of friends and friends in their house in, in St. Paul. And my mom flew back. So I was all by myself. I was going into my senior year of high school. And every day I drive myself to set. And in the beginning, I was in the office. And then when they saw how distracted I got when the actors came in for <laughs> meetings, they were like, all right, just go to set. This is a waste of everyone's time. But I was handling, you know, Meryl Streep, Lily Tomlin, Lindsay Lohan, Maya Rudolph, John C. Riley, Tommy Lee Jones, Kevin Klein. Woody Harrelson. I saw a bunch of these people last night. I mean, mm -hmm. it's the craziest thing, too, to be able to be like, hi, Woody. I don't know if you remember yeah. this, but there's a photo of me with a walkie and you're just like lying on a bench, oh like waiting for me to call. Did he remember? He did. That's awesome. So that was absolutely surreal. That was one. Oh, and Paul Thomas Anderson was also directing it because they couldn't get Altman insured. Right. So it really was also sort of a 
two-hander director-wise. My next job on a set was as Tina Fey's second assistant. She was filming Baby Mama and 30 Rock at the time. And Tina Fey is a very grounded, efficient person who absolutely does not need two assistants. So I mostly was just sort of observing and doing odd jobs. The coolest thing I got to do for her was clean out her office at 30 Rock, at 30 Rockefeller Center. That was very cool. Like I found a notebook for Mean Girls with like – you know, stuff in it. And that was very cool. And it was pre camera phone readiness. <laughs> so I don't have any of those right, photos, right. but that's just as well. Cool. That was very cool. And then my final summer job was as a stand in on the pilot of Boardwalk Empire. Wow. That was also very cool because there was this little known director, Martin Scorsese, who was directing <laughs> it. And I got to be on camera with him every day. And as you can see, that's paid off in dividends. I've been in 10 Scorsese movies. He just can't time. stop Give it time. <laughs> But that was really amazing as well. So they were so different. And then by the time I actually went to work, and the reason I advocate this for actors that are starting out, I knew what everything was. I knew about the rhythm of a set. I knew what everything smelled like. I loved it. I loved being on sets. I knew what everyone's job was. I knew not to ask when we were rapping. I knew all of those things already. What I didn't know and all I had to focus on was how to do my job. Well, and also how to get invited to a set, right? Yeah, Because this was going to be the... So to come back to what you had been doing with these, you know, trying to manufacture viral videos, it seems like... I don't know if this was the first one, but I think it was the first one that got noticed was January 2010 when you still were a few months from graduating from Yale, right? Yeah. This was your acoustic version of Kesha's TikTok, which was, I watched last night, this was great, and (laughs) I actually wonder if even as far back as then, because this connects the thread to Get Out, it felt like you were, it was a winking thing saying, hey, I am the whitest person you will ever meet, right? 100%. Yes, it was very tongue in cheek, which a lot of people didn't get. It was very dry. I mean, you could just think I was earnestly sitting up on a stool singing TikTok. But (laughs) to me, that was so ridiculous that the idea that anyone thought I had any authority to sing those lyrics (laughs) was very funny. But yes, so that got a bit of attention. And I think the original one had to get taken down because it was a rights issue because too many people had seen it. So whatever you watched, I think, is like the second wave of of TikTok. So that was the first. And I was like, oh, interesting. If you combine all these weird tones with a thing that people already know right people will pay attention to it and then the summer after i graduated i had my sort of next big foray into it let's hold on that for a second first you so i guess whatever may june 2010 you graduate how soon after that did you go to la and was that a tough call uh no that was kind of like i just sort of knew that that was what i was supposed to do next there was some talk of do i just stay in new york do i go to chicago because i had done improv comedy in college and that was really my only acting training still is mm-hmm. <laughs> don't tell anyone <laughs> so the idea was like i love improv comedy people i should just follow them wherever they are because they're incredibly creative and prolific and fun and so that was the idea i wanted to go to a city that had a big improv presence but it also felt like since I was more interested in the screen than the stage at that point. I felt like LA was probably the best place to go. Plus the sort of shock of taking yourself out of a context that you know yourself, I I thought would probably benefit me in some way. In you terms came of, out here not really knowing people or did you have I some knew friends people. out here? I knew like family friends, right, like right, my right, parents' right. friends. Right. I was definitely not like lost at sea. I was totally happy I had Where'd all these. 
I lived in Santa Monica. Every New Yorker who doesn't know better <laughs> when they move to LA right. moves to the West Side. Yes. If you know this city, that's fine because you will live accordingly. Mm-hmm. I did not. So if a friend in Los Feliz asked me to dinner, I'd be like, sure. And then I'd leave, you know, a reasonable amount of time to go to a place that's theoretically in the same right. city. So like 45 minutes and I'd get there like an hour and a half. It's late. a disaster. Yeah. It's a big learning curve. That was the one <laughs> flaw. But before I left New York, I broke in a friend of mine who I'd met in the tiny room where they used to put people on tape at my agency, he would put me on tape for auditions just to practice while I was still in college. You had an agent even while you were in college. Yes, this is another incredible yeah, let's story. Get into that, yeah. So both the agent story and the SAG card story are crazy. The SAG card story is that when I was in high school, there was a show on NBC called American Dreams. And what they did with kids of NBC employees is when they were in town, you could go, it was bandstand, American bandstand. So you could go through hair and makeup, get all 60s era dressed up and then go be an extra, which was really fun. So I went to set and I met the producer, Jonathan Prince, who I still talk to. And he, when we were talking, he found out that I wanted to be an actress. Shocker. I'm sure it was radiating out of my body. And so he thought I was telegenic and he wrote me a couple of lines and that's how I got my SAG card. So your first on-camera lines anywhere are on American Dreams. Yes. Interesting. So then I just go back to being in high school, but I have a SAG card and that was incredibly cool. And I wouldn't realize until I got older what a big gift Jonathan had given me. And I still feel very indebted to him. And next is the next group of people who I still feel indebted to, which is that I went with my parents to some event of Mm -hmm. some kind in New York City. And while I was there, Peggy Siegel. I know Peggy. Who is, (laughs) I saw her last night. I see her almost every night, it seems. Did what she so often does, which is she grabbed me by the elbow and said, I want to introduce you to someone. And she pulled me over to meet Bonnie Timmerman, who is a incredible casting director. Mm -hmm. And I met Bonnie and I said, I want to learn about the business. This is in high school still. She said, come talk to me and gave me her card. Probably not expecting me to follow up. Of course, I followed up because I am who I am. (laughs) And I went in and I met with Bonnie for, I don't know, a couple hours. We talked forever and ever and ever. And after I left, Bonnie called Sarah Fargo at Paradigm and said, I just met this actress, Allison Williams. She is in high school and she's not allowed to start acting for another four years, but I still think you should meet with her. Wow. And so then I met with Sarah Fargo. And then I think my freshman year, I did a bunch of monologues in a corner office at Paradigm because I had nothing to show for it. I just did like a Juliet monologue and I don't know what else. And they agreed to work with me, even though I couldn't actually work with them yet. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a vote of confidence, but also, what do they have to lose? Exactly. I mean, it's not, they're not spending any money on me. I'm not making any money for them. It's just acknowledgement of both people's existence, basically. So by the time I moved out to LA, I had my SAG card, I had an agent, I had these viral videos that I had filmed. Oh, so I met Ralph Aaron, who is now at Now This News, in the video audition place at Paradigm. Where does Ellen Novak come into this? Oh, good question. Later. Okay. So I met Ralph then going, I guess, my the summer before my senior year, we had been talking about doing this web series together called Sean and Megan. This is you and Sky Ralph, who you yes, knew from? who I knew from Paradigm, Paradigm. who was putting people on tape. Okay. It was very intimate. It was literally like a closet that had been repurposed <laughs> with video equipment in it. And you'd come in and be like, I can't go or we're right. losing him. I need 40 cc's of whatever. You know, you'd audition with him and- right. He asked me to do this web series. I said yes. So on weekends during my senior year, I would go into New York City. We'd film this web series called Sean and Megan. And then eventually it came out. And so when I was looking at 
graduation and all of the pressure I had, I was saying to Ralph, I feel like we should make some music videos that are really unique, done in one camera movement, one take, because I love that sort of the electric energy of knowing something was live, a live sound recording, all of this. And so then the two of us started sort of brainstorming together. And I, at the same time, took my first real acting class in New York City after graduating with Ellen Novak, which I still recommend to everybody. And she has a book coming out actually very soon. And the particular value of that was you learn how to audition for a camera. Exactly. And more than anything else, it gave me a rubric to follow for an audition. And there were all kinds of little weird tricks, like start your audition with a strong physical gesture. If for no other reason, then it'll make you stand out in a bunch of thumbnails. And... That has been really effective. It just sort of helped me when I got sides, rather than feeling overwhelmed, I got excited because it was an opportunity to do what I love doing. And I didn't look at it as such an adversarial relationship. She really changed the the way I thought about it. She was like, you want to be the solution to their problem. They want to go home. (laughs) This casting director wants to find the one for their director so that they can finish trying to cast your character, put your headshot up on the Mm -hmm. wall, and then move on to the next one. And because of the way the room is set up, it's just your body is triggered into thinking, oh, they are in judgment of me. Yeah. And this is an adversarial thing rather than a, a cohesive thing where we're working together to make me the answer to their problem. So Ellen kind of reframes that. But then also you get used to looking at your face on camera and learning what your face does. And I know that's not the way some actors act, but it was super helpful yeah. for me to try to understand and kind of work backwards from, okay, wait, that was too subtle. This is just subtle enough. That was too big. You know, I mean, all of that stuff is super useful. So then simultaneously with Ellen's class, I was working on these videos with Ralph and we filmed three of them before I moved to L.A. that summer. And after I moved to L.A., fresh out of Ellen's class, having just finished these music videos, I released the Mad Men one called Mad Men Theme Song with a Twist. I put it online. Let's just tell people this is, I guess it goes up in October 2010 and it's basically pairing Nat King Cole lyrics from nature boy with the mad men theme song so as if the mad men theme song had lyrics lyrics, and you're in like a gown with gloves and everything and you've got a whole band behind you playing this live and i love the caption on the video where it's something like recorded in one take on take 29 or something i mean it took us a long time to get it but it was in one take and the funny thing when I look back on that is that my costume came from my high school costume department. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. I went home. I raided their costume shop. The guy who did my makeup, Ed Jackson, has been doing my dad's makeup and a lot of MSNBC and NBC anchors makeup for years and years and years. So you did that video after you'd done Ellen's class. The reason I'm at Yes. Because you're very expressive with the camera in that where it's on you, there's... And you can't like you're looking at the camera basically the whole time. And I, it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people would get intimidated without much experience at that point. point, you know. And so I wonder if it had anything to do with that. Well, I actually one of the weird things about cameras and one of the ways I've always kind of looked at it is it's like you're at a party and you know where the person you have a crush on is standing <laughs> and you can feel when they're looking at you, but you cannot look into the lens. <laughs> and so you're giving all the expressiveness you have to that set of eyeballs across the room without looking at it directly. And if you want to do something really, you know, gutsy, you look just beyond it Mm -hmm. or right next to it, but you do not look at that person. And so when you do look into the lens in a situation like that, 
you have to pretend it's someone's face. Mm-hmm. And there is someone right behind it, so it's oh, helpful. Sure, yeah. And in this case, it was someone on Steadicam. But I had also, Sean and Megan, the little series I did with Ralph, there were interviews interspersed with actual scenes. And so I kind of got both kinds of training while shooting that, where I was talking directly right. to the camera and then also doing scene work. Well, so but the result really of this question. video is like high production value, really sounds yeah, good. Yeah, all it's the Sean cool. and Megan guys called in a million favors. Right. The guy who played my improv group in college was a musical improv group too. So we did full length musicals, musical games, and then also just regular improv games. And so the pianist from my improv group, his roommate, because the pianist was out of town, his roommate stepped in to help me compose all of this stuff. And he's the one who's conducting and right. playing the bongos. It seems like the intent for you and probably for some of these other guys was that this goes viral, right? Hopefully in the best case scenario. Yeah, but also worst case scenario, I just have something I can send people and we right. all do. Because that was the thing about it is that for everyone involved, for Josh Rubin who helped sort of produce it to right. Vince who helped shoot it to Ralph who directed it, like all of them had a thing that we all had things that we could set out and so it was kind of this like collaborative thing well i'm just thinking though for for you what a great showcase where you can you're you're in full glam you're showing that you can sing there is some element of i don't know i wouldn't acting may be the wrong word but like you are performing performing yeah and it actually had that effect, right? So how does pick up the story? The weirdest thing, (laughs) the most insane thing, and if you're noticing a trend, it's that I have been completely unfairly lucky thus far, and it doesn't end here. So that's just a note of warning. (laughs) But I can promise you that I'm well aware of it. When we were filming it, my dad said to me, I mean, what if someone like Judd Apatow sees this? And it was just in the names of people that we used when talking about what we wanted this video to do, who we wanted it to reach, how we we would get to reach people. And every once in a while, my dad would inject another name that just made me like (laughs) just (laughs) sticky feet with nerves about the idea of that person seeing it. So we put the video up online. And because I'm my dad's daughter, because it was the Mad Men theme song, because it's live, all of those little ingredients, all the things I had learned doing digital media stuff at college worked. And it made its way to, I think, Huffington Post. And a friend of mine actually recently told me he was the one that put it on the HuffPo. Yeah, which was crazy. And then I think Judd saw it there. And they were in the process of casting girls. I had just moved to L.A. They had just moved casting to L.A. because they couldn't find Marnie in New York. And I had just come out of my Ellen Novak class, fresh with my worksheet. Find Marnie, who they're looking for, like a a New Yorker, and they have to go to LA to find. Which is really funny because her character description that I got was very New York girl, and she was supposed to be like very New York Jewish girl. Right. And they moved casting to LA. I had moved to LA. I had a worksheet from an audition class. I got an email about an audition for the Untitled Lena Dunham project. I thought, oh my gosh, I'll be able to use my new tools. I can't wait. Did to... you know who Lena Dunham was? All she'd really done was Tiny Furniture. Tiny Furniture, I didn't know. Yeah. But before my audition, I watched Tiny Furniture and I obviously read the pilot. And I thought, oh my God, this is so elemental and fantastic. And it was like being spied on by someone and then having my thoughts <laughs> written into a pilot. And so just I went to let in. people know how yeah. Judd's connected, he yes. came on to be the executive, executive producer. producer. Yeah, with Jenny Connor and right. Lena. So I go to my audition, ready to just use all my skills. I felt like I knew Marnie. She felt totally familiar to me. Everyone in the room was crying 
in preparation for the scene because <laughs> it was a fight with Charlie. But I knew that Marnie both took Charlie for granted and didn't like totally love him. So of course she wouldn't be crying about a fight with him. <laughs> but that's really intimidating. If you yeah. walk into an audition room and everyone is preparing in one way, and right. they were all dressed like businesswomen, and so I was wait, dressed like a fake all, hipster. Everyone's crying. All the other people that were going in for the same part. Yes, we're getting ready to be crying in the room. Oh, okay. we're pre-crying. So you were seeing how many other people did you see that were about like to do ten. that? And they were all in business casual. I was in sort of wannabe hipster garb. <laughs> they were like pre-crying. I was totally not. <laughs> it was very scary. And I just had to trust my new Ellen Novak instincts. And I go into the room. We do the scenes. They go well. They send me out to learn another scene. I learn that scene. I go back into the room. At this point, it just feels like play. This is the most fun. Then they suggest that Lena and I improvise a fight. We get an argument. We resolve it. And then I think we do one of the other scenes one more time. What was this about braiding her hair or something? Oh, yeah. One of the scenes was a walk and talk. And it's actually okay. in the pilot. It's the one about sort of the totem pole of contact or communication or something. <laughs> it's been a minute. I can't right, remember. Right, but right. it's walking. And so as a scene, it just felt very lifeless. And so one of the Ellen Novak things was like action. Just put action in the scenes that you have if it'll help you. And I was like, can I braid your hair during this conversation just to give us something to do so we're not like sort of teetering back and forth on our feet. And so I did. And Lena, who has always been the first to admit this, yes. is not a big shampooer. <laughs> and her hair was incredibly dirty. And I just did it anyway. And I feel like we even put that into the our right. scene. We probably talked about it in some way. But anyway, so I left the audition feeling happy and like it had all gone really well and obviously I wasn't going to get this part because who am I <laughs> but it was a great first audition experience all my Ellen Novak tools worked I probably emailed her to say like thank you so mm -hmm. much this was so effective then I found out that I was called back the whole process yeah. was like 10 days before you really knew? really fast so yeah. what because at some point I know Lena said and I just this was in a recent THR oral history of the show when it ended. She said, quote, I called Allison before we cast her and I asked her how she felt about nudity. So I'm guessing this is obviously if they're even thinking about that far, it's pretty far down the line yeah. deciding they want you. She said, I don't want to do nudity. I was like, we have to get back to you. I'm going to be naked. People are going to be naked. That's a big part of what this show is. She told us she wasn't scared of sex. She just didn't want to show her vagina or nipples or her butt, and she never did, close quote. So that, once you guys resolved that little issue, then it was a go? So I was, I, when I look back on this, I just think, what was I thinking? But also, <laughs> thank God. So at this point, there wasn't a callback so much as there were tests with the network, and there weren't even really tests as much as it was a rehearsal in front of executives. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I had already signed my contract. So between my initial audition to when I flew to New York to test, yeah, at some years. point in there, oh yeah, seven year, classic. Although we didn't quite make no. it. No. <laughs> I always, I was like, Lena, we signed for seven. Yeah, we can do another <laughs> one. And she was like, nope, it's six. It's right. gotta be six. Right. But so at some point in between that, the conversation around nudity took place. and. They were like, well, you have to sign this nudity writer because it's an HBO show. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that you might be jeopardizing the whole shebang. I don't know what. I knew nothing <laughs> at this point. Just assume I don't know anything about what I'm doing. Right. I just was operating on the advice. At this point, I had lived in L.A. long enough to enlist the support of family, friends, and stuff like that. And among them, I was incredibly lucky to know Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks pretty well. And they were 
my real champions. They were, Tom once told me that the times you say no are much more impactful than the times you say yes. Rita was the one saying like, stick to your guns. I've never done nudity. If this is something you're uncomfortable about in a kind of elemental way, do not second guess yourself. Don't fall to sort of peer pressure in that way. So I just said no. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure my agents doing their job were like, you could lose this part if you <laughs> don't sign the nudity writer. Right. What I didn't know is that they really needed to cast a Marnie. Right. And so I'm sure what they thought was, she will fall in love with the culture of our show. She'll want to get in on the action. Of course she'll do nudity. <laughs> and jokes on them because they never did. Then eventually the contract was signed. I flew to New York to do the test, which was just a rehearsal with everybody. And we were off to the races. So at that point when you signed up, still at that point only there's going to be three girls, right? Not four. Yes, three girls and a zany cousin and named Shoshana. Was, so Shoshana, because of Zasha, grew into a bigger part. They just liked her. Yeah, totally. And yeah. a lot of people, again, were having trouble finding Shosh. And then Zasha was on set somewhere in, I think, Vermont or Maine. And just like, like a missile right. just completely killed it. And so they elevated it to a regular well i guess let's go back a second though so when you find out you've got this part and it's for hbo and it's you know i guess not many people knew who lena was yet or what the show might be but at that point i think it was more known for being associated with judd than for lena right at the outset maybe probably but like it must have seemed like still like a very big deal how did oh you celebrate God. like what was the reaction? i mean so a couple things one at the premiere party for boardwalk empire months earlier I ran into Richard Poplar, who runs HBO, mm -hmm. and I reminded him that I was graduating soon. And I asked what they had coming up. And he said, well, we have this one show with Lena Dunham, but it's too dirty and raunchy for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I constantly tease him about that wow. because it turns out it wasn't. Right. And they really tried right. to make it too raunchy and dirty for me, but they did not succeed. So that was very funny to look back on. I think people were kind of aware that it was like a young sex in the city thing. But the way the business is set up is for no satisfaction to happen ever. Because, okay, so you get called to test. They could always fire you rather than signing <laughs> you. You get signed to the pilot. They could always recast you after the pilot or the pilot doesn't get picked up. The pilot gets picked up. They could still fire you. Or they just make your part terrible right. and then they fire you after a season. <laughs> or they don't pick up the first season right. or, you know, whatever. It gets panned. So one of the things that Rita taught me early on was to celebrate things as they happened or I'd lose my mind. Right. And that has been incredibly important because it's not really – people knock on wood more in this business than anyone else. I'm still doing it about Get Out even though the mm -hmm. jury is pretty mm -hmm. much out on yeah. it. It's all – It's life is almost over insofar as we have anything to do with it as actors in it. But – it's just the way you're wired. So I was constantly, I was so psyched. And thank God Rita told me to do this because mm -hmm. otherwise that excitement, I would not have let it live with me. I would have fought it because it, it felt scary and like, oh, I can't get too excited about this because it might not happen. And also helpful was that I met my now husband after we filmed the pilot when we were waiting to hear if it got picked up. So he was kind of along for that whole ride. And he was also encouraging of like, be psyched. This yeah. is great. Right. You're 22. This yeah. is insane. Right. Who Whose life is this? You know, <laughs> so that was great. But yes, it was really exciting. And to my friends and family that I had been telling since I was three years old that I was going to be an actress, this was both a relief and a shock. Yeah, They yeah. were so relieved that I was going to... I, conceivably be making my living as an actress and shocked that I that it happened this way and so quickly that by 
Thanksgiving, I had something to talk about. Right. They were sure that Thanksgiving's for years and years to come. I was going to so say. So let's just remind people. So you graduate in June 2010. Yeah. And Girls goes on, not on the air because it's cable, but goes out on the cable. What are we talking? Late 2012. It right. premieres. Like but April. April 2012. So yes. we're not even two years after graduating. Yeah, but college. I got cast in the pilot, I think, November 2010. Oh, my God. So it's like, really, like you haven't had one holiday where you're where people are saying well what are you gonna do with your life yes i i avoided that i mean they still try (laughs) (laughs) they're still they're still there are a lot of mathematicians in my family who probably thumb their nose at what i do for a living that's amazing well yeah so from the outset were you able to figure out some sort of guiding rule about approaching this character marnie she we are told is someone who likes rules and yet wants to go into the art world where that is not consistent with with that she has been described as polished but angst-ridden a lot of conflicting things here so i want to ask you how you decided you know or if you even could have some sort of philosophy about how you're going to play it or you had to just wait as things came along and then part b the only other person i've ever heard of with the name marnie is the character played by tippy hedron yes exactly alfred hitchcock's 1964 movie with that name who has been described as having quote Severe psychological issues when it comes to men, close quote. Is that purely a coincidence? That seems very sexist. I'm I'm sure it was written by a sexist. I'm sure it was written by a sexist. I'm sure she's just a woman. Yes. I actually don't know where the name came from. I don't know that Lena is a big Hitchcock fan. I'm not sure. I love it. And I think it has had a slight increase in popularity since the show. But in terms of the actual character, I fought it a little bit. When I first started playing Marnie, we were very similar. And so anything that seemed like an indictment on her character really hurt because it was also an indictment on my character. (laughs) Over time, it got much easier because the further apart we became, the more self-aware I became, the more I grew up as a person and sort of became comfortable in my own skin, the less it hurt to make fun of Marnie or for people to laugh at things that I didn't know were funny. A great example of this is in the first season, I believe in the third episode I masturbated for the first time on camera in a bathroom at an art opening (laughs) and I'm 22 maybe I'm 23 at this point I never done anything sexual in nature on camera oh no no no, that's not true I had done a sex scene already but this was you know this is a big deal sex by yourself on camera is a big deal you have family and it's a whole thing and so I was really nervous. Lena and I had like a whole meeting to discuss what she was picturing and what she wanted it to look like and how to achieve it without being naked was also mm-hmm. a thing. So then I finished shooting the scene, feeling pretty pleased with myself, feeling like I had done justice <laughs> to this moment. And I walked past Eileen Landris, our incredible, wonderful producer. And I said, what do you think? And she goes, hilarious, and just keeps walking. And I was like, hilarious? <laughs> That wasn't supposed to be funny. That was like a serious grown-up really? acting moment. What are you doing? That wasn't funny. It just crushed me. And I thought, what is funny about masturbating in an art gallery opening bathroom? My God. And of course, everything about that is funny, but I couldn't see it because right. it was too close. Right. So with time, it got a lot easier. There were all, a million little moments. But basically, my philosophy was, it's all on the page. Mm-hmm. Just don't do anything at all. Don't act at all. Just say the words and be present, and that's most of the job. But it's you do with Marnie. I had to lean into the abhorrent, cringier sides of her because that's where the comedy came from. And pretty much by season two, we had parted ways, and the <laughs> golf only grew with time right. as I continued to mature as someone raised by my parents, and she continued to mature as someone raised by, <laughs> by her hers, parents. Right. 
when Girls first came out, I remember uh, it's not that long ago that it definitely caused a big commotion. Sue Nagel, who I guess ran HBO at that time, yeah. recently told THR, quote, there had never been a show that had skewed that young or that had been about people that age at HBO. The feeling had been that the HBO viewer was much older and more affluent, and they wanted to see the shows about their experience, close quote. And yet you guys obviously blew that notion up, and it became a big part of this cultural conversation and spawned a million think pieces so about think pieces. gender, sexuality, coming of age in recession-era America. A lot of people loved it. There were also, as you know, some people who didn't. What? And, and uh, I'm sorry to break, but like <laughs> this whole concept of hate watching it's such a lie. I, but like, did it start? Life is far too short. I, that's what I'm thinking. And I also wonder, like, you have nothing better to do than watch and tweet about something you're not enjoying. So you guys, you had it on both ends. You had people that thought you were like the second coming. And you had people that thought, and in some ways they thought they thought you were the second coming of Sex and the City or the filling of void that yeah. they had. And then you have assholes. So when did you first start to feel that people were watching the show? It must have changed your life a little bit. And then also this these extreme reactions. Well, that's where that four years in college really came in handy because it meant that I was very aware of the fact that there was nothing mean anyone can say that I hadn't already thought of. And there's actually a line like that in Girls where it's like, you can't say anything mean to me that I haven't thought about right. myself, which is very true. And especially the older you get, only when you're young are you kind of shocked by these revelations <laughs> from mean things that bullies say to you when you're your own bully but you also are kind of fine with yourself. Right. It doesn't hurt as much. So that was, plus I trusted Lena's vision. I trusted absolutely what she was saying. To this day, I mean, I rewatched an episode called American Bitch that I've been thinking about a lot in the wake of this kind of Me Too, Time's Up movement. She constantly does this. Like life will just be going on and then suddenly you'll have a flashback to an episode of Girls and you have to go back and watch it and you realize how prescient it was. And if you rewatch that episode from last season, it really is in so many ways shockingly like a fortune teller doing an episode of television but anyway so i was very confident about that and i loved doing my job and my family was supportive of it and ricky was supportive of it and all my friends liked it and watched it electively they weren't watching it because i was yeah, on it because right. as the years went by they continued to watch it even though they could fully get away with not watching it at right, that point right and that little clump of people that constitutes my universe was then and continues to really be the only barometer I need. And as long as we're all cool with each other, I'm good. And the approval of the outside, I think in large part because the success of girls and the sort of getting recognized yeah. outside, all of it, it increased slowly, gradually, manageably. My life is totally great and manageable. I will never complain about like, I ride the subway all the time with to know issue whatsoever mm -hmm. sometimes people ask for a photo it's always lovely yep. and it is such a pleasure and it happened gradually enough that i wasn't shocked into this new realm it just slowly became my new reality but that core of people and existence remained pretty fixed and still does to this day and made all of that much easier like all of the people saying this is a terrible show whatever <laughs> everyone on it is terrible no one thought we were acting at all which was well, so deeply insulting go, because you have said that and I think Lena said this, that there's sort of, even just in people's career trajectory since Girls, some of the guys who were associated with it, Adam Driver in particular, has had wonderful opportunities come pretty quickly and taken advantage of it, and good for him. But there's almost, throughout the show, 
there was an assumption that maybe has continued to some extent afterwards that the women were just playing themselves. Yeah. And earlier when I said don't act at all, I was right. like, oh, God, I'm just playing into this. But what I just mean is that don't like give a Shakespearean monologue performance in this show it wouldn't work right. But it is hard to play. It was hard to play Marnie. It required a lot of work on my part. It's very hard to describe what that work was, but I w it wasn't a documentary. I wasn't being myself. Yeah. And it's a compliment when people think you're being yourself because it means that the performance is natural enough to fool people into thinking that that's the case. It also means that people are like, well, I guess that's what she can do. Right. So She's we'll just send her in. versions right, of right, that. Right. We'll send her versions of Marnie. And it wasn't honestly until I did Peter Pan, but it wasn't until the script for Get Out came right. along that someone actually saw the potential of using that against an audience. We're about to get to Get Out, and I, I want to really dive into that. But I think the interesting thing that I wondered about Get Out, clearly Jordan had his reasons for why you were perfect for the part, because you come, as you've said, with sort of this preconceived notion of what, you know, people associate you with Marnie, people associate you with maybe whiteness or whatever. Uh, definitely whiteness. You know, <laughs> so that was... Daughter of a journalist, daughter, Connecticut, Yale, all of you it. You can trust it's her, all right. useful. So yes. that was serving his purpose. Yes. For your purposes, could there be anything better to blow up the notion that you're playing yourself than a character who initially feels that, feeds who that idea? playing me. Yeah, and then blows that up. Yes, exactly. I mean, it was, it was an absolute dream synergistic moment of casting where it was exactly what I needed. And I held out. I love movies so much that I would be damned before taking a role in a movie that in any way could jeopardize my love for what I did for a living. Because most people, if they can, will take a, when they're starting to get momentum in a career like you were once this once Girls was taking off, you use your hiatus to go and do a movie or whatever. And right. people were saying, well, so surely – Allison wants to do a movie. Why hasn't this happened yet? Desperate to do them. Either I didn't get parts that I wanted or I was getting offered parts that I didn't want or the timing didn't work out because I was on Girls. But regardless, I was lucky enough to have what I often referred to as my day job as Marnie on Girls. Yeah. So I had the luxury financially and just sort of stability-wise to be selective. And so I used that. And I allowed myself to really be thoughtful about what this first movie was. And none of the things I was sent, for the most part, dealt with what was happening, the sort of social fabric of our country in at all the same way that Get Out did. And none of them asked me to stretch myself in the same way. It was just so unique. It was total kismet and a highlight of my life. I just actually found an early email between me and Jordan. It was like... September of 2015, mm -hmm. I think. He was sending me a new draft, and then I saw, in our, I was looking for another email from him. I saw an email of Daniel Kaluuya's audition. You know, like, I think this is the guy. What do you think? And it's just crazy to look back on our whole yeah, journey it. together. Yeah. Just to go back for one second to the sort of evolution of somebody's perception in the business, I want to ask you, you know, early on, even in magazine articles or whatever, you were Brian Williams' daughter, right? Oh, God. It it, yeah, I remember there was one magazine where my name wasn't even on the cover. It was uh, just I was someone's daughter. Well, so I guess, and, and that was in some ways, that conversation was maybe a little bit perpetuated by the fact that then with girls, all four of you had a well-known parent or multiple parents, and people started harping on that a little bit. But obviously, when the show broke out, I think that probably started to recede. When did, in your memory, 
the Brian Williams' daughter prefix fade away and you became seen as your own person? What a good question. I think it's still, it has a half-life, definitely. For example, I avoid being overtly political to this day because people will ascribe my beliefs to, of course, since I'm just a a woman after all, my beliefs (laughs) must come from my father. (laughs) I'm almost 30 and of course everything I know comes from daddy. But no, I'm serious. If I were to come out strongly in one way politically, people would definitely Mm -hmm. get mad at him for it and he would pay the price for it. So there is this inextricable kind of umbilical cord career-wise between the two of us. And it's something that I've now been watching my brother deal with and it's even more direct because it's broadcasting. But in the beginning, I was really annoyed by it. And that magazine cover was that's the ridiculous. peak of my annoyance. Yeah. That was insulting. And, you um, don't want to share which magazine. That no, was. I wouldn't, but it, <laughs> you'll be able to figure it okay. out. It was horrifying. But over time, I started to think, you know, I'm really grateful that this person is my, I love him. We're incredibly close. I'm proud of him. It's not as bad as if we were estranged and right. didn't talk right. to each other and you know I didn't get along with right. him I felt really fortunate and we talked constantly every day all day and so it was something that I sort of pivoted into yes he's a great guy that's not what my career is about can we please go back to talking about my job and that's kind of the arc that a lot of these interviews took and then slowly over time I think as I I'd say probably three or four years but still you know a friend of mine once told me, you don't realize how big the country is until seven years into your career, you're still sitting down and telling your origin story. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. And I'll probably be doing it for another 10 because it's big world mm-hmm. and you reintroduce yourself to it right. constantly. Right. And part of that for me is who my parents are. And it is the case for everybody. But there's like a weird asterisk next to my dad that makes it a longer story than some. But I was recently talking to another actress who is just getting onto the scene who is someone famous's Mm -hmm. daughter and we were sort of commiserating about the interview questions. Like, what have they taught you? What advice did they give you? And it's just, you know, it's very predictable. They have to ask. And of course, we're fortunate to be close to our parents. You have to be grateful and express that. But it does step beside the point of you are your own person. You're a professional actor. And it's a lot harder to be taken seriously as an actor when people just see you as reflections of your parents. And I think that played into the girls thing. Although the narrative that we all were given our roles because of who our parents are is hilarious. And that's just, if our business worked that way with that much nepotism in it, it would just crater. (laughs) There'd be no shows of quality on television at all. You still have to be good at your job. And I've heard like, you know, people can choose to believe what they want, but supposedly Lena didn't even know that Zasha was... Yeah, no, she thought you you pronounced her name Zosiah M.M.A. She thought she was French. (laughs) That's not a joke. And once you get to know Lena, that seems even less like a joke. It's totally plausible. (laughs) And she didn't know who my dad was. She pictured Peter Jennings for like two years. Until she met my dad, she was picturing the wrong guy. And I think at that point, Peter Jennings was deceased. So that was even weirder. But yes, that's not why. As we're now dealing with the transition from the end of girls leading into the beginning of get out is like there's this period here where i guess how did you feel with the way you left the character the way the show ended with girls and then what was the immediate outlook when for the first day you're not bound to the show that you've been a part of for however many years it's really scary it's really scary it was even scarier looking at it from coming down the pike like it was very intimidating this idea that i'd had emotionally the safety blanket of at Thanksgiving, I'd have an answer to that question. What are you up to? Well, of course, I'm, you know, 
we're promoting this latest season of Girls, and then in the spring we'll start shooting again. It was this very reliable wheel that I was on. It was repetitive and and consistent and comforting, and it allowed me the space to be creative in other ways, and it gave me permission to be selective. But I knew that permission was on a timer. That was all of my careful avoiding movies that I wasn't going to be proud of was about to go completely to shit when after not being on girls for six years or something, I'd have to just say, okay, I have to do something. And then all of those wasted would have been decent, but weren't winner movies that I didn't do. were just going to look so good by comparison to whatever (laughs) it was that I was going to start choosing. So that was really, really intimidating and really scary. And had there really been any offers for film that had been, you'd been close to going down the road with, over oh, yeah, there are many, a million near misses. I mean, one of them was this movie All Summer Long, which was a movie not about the Beach Boys, but that was a movie musical using Beach Boys music. Mm-hmm. And that movie fell through, but my auditions for that got me Peter Pan. Okay. There are a million stories like that where wow. it's just these weird near misses because it was the same producers as uh, Peter Pan. Is this, that's Satan and Marin? Or they, where yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had been producing this other movie, seeing a million videos of me at my laptop singing, right. and they just thought like, "Oh, okay, fine, <laughs> we'll just cast her as Peter Pan." I'm well, because sure that could do was it. the first that thing was really, outside of yeah, those. outside of I did some episodes of The League and mm-hmm. The Mini Project, which were shows that I had friends associated with, and those were early in my girl's career, and then took a long break, and then played Peter Pan. And that, just to remind people, this is live, live. on NBC. Three hours. Three hours. Chris Walken. Yeah. It, so not everyone would have had the guts, balls, whatever, to do that. Was it a tough call? I mean, again, it comes back to the childhood, I guess, in some way. Yeah, that it was, was instant. I didn't yeah. have to think about it. No, not for a second. Not for a second. And you knew what a lot of people in the public did not know, which is that you can sing. Yeah. Well, or that, but I didn't know I could sing as an ageless British boy who was also <laughs> flying and sword fighting. And I mean, there were a lot of things I didn't know. I didn't know how to do. I'd never done stage combat. I'd never flown. I'd never, I'd never had to sing a song while I was wearing a harness. I'd never <laughs> tried to dance while wearing a harness or do anything in a harness. Right. I don't think that's TMI. I just hadn't spent much time in harnesses. Right. So there was a lot I didn't know. What I did know was that I had to do it. I had to do it. It was like a tip of the hat to that little girl who got me here, the the girl who's obsessed with Peter Pan, who didn't want to grow up. I broke her rules and I grew up and I shouldn't have. And this was kind of my <laughs> way of apologizing to her, but also reassuring her that even though I look like I grew up from the outside, I'd still play dress up for a living. So I didn't really. The amazing thing, though, is that more so, I think, than girls, the thing that led to Get Out was Peter Pan. Yeah. Jordan talks about this all the time because it's it doesn't make much sense, but I think there were a couple of things. One, Peter Pan isn't going to, he's a mischievous, ageless boy. <laughs> he's not going to lie to you about being a white supremacist <laughs> who kills people. And additionally, there's a kind of, only afterwards when I was kind of thinking back on it after it was over, because it was such an intense process, so much fun doing Peter Pan, such hard work for like three or four months all day, every day. It just, it was my life. And when it was over, I looked back on it thinking, oh my God, that was really risky. Something mm-hmm. could have gone so badly. Mm-hmm. I could have messed up in a thousand different ways in every scene. It's live. It's live. All the flights were pre-programmed, so they'd hit go, and then there was no stopping it. There was an emergency button, but otherwise, if I wasn't standing in the right place to take off, I could have ended up stranded somewhere. I mean, it was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, I looked back on it, and I thought, wow, that was really... I 
I guess I wasn't scared of that. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel scary to me, but it was the kind of challenge I really liked. And Jordan saw that. He was like, oh, she is willing to do this and didn't seem very cowed by it. Right. I guess she'll do kind of anything. And at that point, when you first heard from Jordan, had I mean, I don't know if you would have had time during the run of girls to have even watched Keen Peele. Did you know oh, who I Jordan Peele was? Keen you did? Peele. Yes, are you okay. kidding? I mean, girls was, we filmed for just over three months every summer. It was oh, okay. not like, not you know, big. I wasn't Overall. on a lot in LA kind okay, of thing. Okay. It was, yes, I love Keen Peele. So I just worship their first stuff. hear from him? I heard from my agent. They were sending me his script. And then they said, Jordan wants to talk to you after you read it. Actually, he wanted to talk to me before I read it. But I didn't know that. I thought it was after. So I read it immediately. Absolutely loved it. He was worried that without the right preamble, people would think it was insane. But I liked it because I guess I'm insane in some way. And so then we talked for like two hours about it. And I think he was trying to figure out, just make sure that I understood what the movie was saying and that I was on board. And I was militantly on board. First actor on board. That's true. And it's just kind of interesting because this is your first time acting in a film it's yep. his first time directing a feature film obviously he'd done similar things in television but like this is a there's nothing quite like a feature film as you, i guess you both found yes. together and you guys are going to go down to alabama to do this yeah and well you, first it was la and then about three weeks before we started shooting we lost the tax break uh, so we went to alabama uh, <laughs> it's a, a big very change. big yeah. shift yes. it wasn't like we went to I don't know, Oregon. Yeah, it was like, no, Alabama. Change, right. Yeah, which I ended up absolutely loving. And we you went early? What night. was the reason to go early? I went early because this is kind of my thing. I like being really, when I was in plays, I loved being one of the first people at the theater. It's really nice to get fully settled before the swirl of people starts pulling you into it. And the same applied to Alabama. I went down there. I drove down with my husband and our dog, Moxie. Oh, yeah, we got married somewhere in there. We're <laughs> <laughs> doing the sheer trajectory of my life. Right. And I got a dog, Moxie. Who, yes. I guess it's in that order, although the real order, I won't say. <laughs> so I moved down there. He flew back to New York. My assistant came down, lived with us. And by us, I mean me and Moxie. Mm-hmm. And we got fully settled and became totally in love with this town. I could walk through the Target in Fairhope, Alabama, like blindfolded. I just, <laughs> we had a donut place that we loved and we went to all the time. We had a cleaning person who we loved and we had a florist that we, like, we just got the whole town. And then everyone arrived and it was perfect because I felt totally settled. And immediately, I just instinctively started trying to, and it was very meta, but I tried to get people to come to the house to just hang. I tried to make my house the hang right. place. And because of the role I was playing, it was them. scary. Yeah, right. oh but I think God. people quickly realized that no harm would come to them right. at my house. They'd just be fed, and that was the worst right. that would happen. There was an outdoor fireplace. So it became kind of the place people hung out. And the nice thing about being on location was that we were all strangers in that town together so we all sort of stuck to each other whereas if we had shot in la people would have had dinner plans with their friends and it would have been much more fractured it would have felt like a day job rather than our lives for that period of time so how did you reconcile this like you know being the hostess with the mostess for all these guys with then having to when the cameras start rolling you know in certain situations i guess particularly with daniel who i believe you had bonded with oh yeah just like shutting that down i will quote what daniel said which is that quote she kept it being batshit even when the cameras weren't rolling close (laughs) quote so i mean what were you doing one you know on the one hand you're being again very warm and welcoming and then when you had to go to work what happened 
Well, I go to work. Mm-hmm. So we didn't start shooting those, the eviler scenes until late in the shooting schedule, which was great because after having spent so much time on sets in my life, where whether as a crew person or on girls, the camaraderie between the crew and me has always been incredibly important to me and one of the most important ingredients in a happy, harmonious on-set environment. So it was very important to me that I became close to everybody prior to playing Roro as we as we came things. to know her. Right. right, because also in my preparation for her, it became clear to me that I'd need to be by myself because it's so against type. She's so quiet and calculated and evil and removed that I'd have to I knew I would have to physically be removed from everybody else and that was a very that was very strange to me usually I'm the minute they say cut I'm talking to people joking with people and then I can go right back into it but when you're playing someone like her especially someone who hates Daniel Kaluuya that much which is impossible (laughs) for me to affect for very long I had to be totally by myself so there's a ton of photos of me just like standing on that road where I eventually die and so many other people die and (laughs) in my warming coat with my headphones on just like looking down at the ground and it's incredibly creepy but I was just listening to the like the most angry music I could think of and trying to stay in the zone because it's tricky you've fallen in love with this entire group of people you're living with them basically and it's hard to look at every single one of them as disposable i had to be able to look at daniel kaluuya and not think i hate you i hate you i hate you (laughs) think you're nothing you're worthless you're a body Mm -hmm. you're just a a disposable body certainly with a disposable brain (laughs) um and that's hard that's i'm happy to report that is that was very hard for me to do and so i had to be sort of by myself and remove but that was why it was so nice to like on my days off when I wasn't playing Roro I to be able to like give in to every instinct I had to just take care of people and hang out with them and love them and to this day I feel incredibly close to our crew and cast and everything it's that's been one of the real pleasures of this experience is being able to see so much of each other I guess this is as good a time as any to ask you about the scene that undoubtedly secured your MTV movie award nomination for best villain (laughs) This is the one where you are, of course, up in your room, sitting, eating Fruit Loops, drinking milk through a straw, listening to I've Had the Time of My Life, (laughs) and searching for NCAA prospects to add to your wall of conquests. That is some demonic shit. Sure is. And how was that scene for you? Strange. It was added while after we started shooting. Once Jordan got to see Roro, and she was coming together, we were doing fittings for her, and all that stuff, he was like, okay, I think we want to see her up in her room during all of the insanity that's taking place in the basement and downstairs. We want to know what she's up to. And it's an opportunity to just understand who she is at her core when she isn't pretending to be someone a little bit like me. (laughs) So the task then became, what is the weirdest thing I could be eating? (laughs) (laughs) There's so many things about that shot that I absolutely love. I love how meticulous all of her clothing is and how androgynous and strange and I love her posture and I love that immediately after he's put into the sunken place mentally and then Mm -hmm. also put downstairs she frames all of those photos that she so evilly left out just with the door cracked open in case he wanted to find them just because she likes (laughs) torturing them at the end I love that she hung them back up I love that she was she had a little tray on her bed and that she is finicky enough to not want to 
eat cereal like a normal person. And <laughs> how much um, of this is you suggesting things versus it was already a, scripted? It was a full like conversation. Yeah. I remember sitting at craft services with Jordan, like between takes on something, mm-hmm. and just shouting snack ideas at each other and trying to come up with it. Like black and white cookie is too literal, <laughs> but like you know maybe donuts are just weird enough and right. all of this stuff. But eventually he came up with the idea of Fruit Loops and milk separately, <laughs> and then I came up with the idea of the tiny bites and the right. sort of doing things in threes, the sort of OCD <laughs> control. Is that nice though to have another actor directing you to is and yes. maybe being receptive in that way? He's an incredible. I mean, I can't. I'm so spoiled now from these writer directors who have yeah. something to prove and are obsessed with this one idea they have and executing it well because it they cannot do anything else until they've finished executing this. And Lena was like that when Girls started, and Jordan was like this when Get Out started. And it is my favorite working relationship because, first of all, it's one-stop shopping in terms of the writer and the director. It's one person. There's an authority on the subject matter. And the other thing is, especially if they also act, which is the case with Jordan and Lena, they're not precious about things. And when they are, you take it seriously. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly collaborative. And then when they put their foot down, you're like, okay, all right. Right. That your word is, is the law. And that is the best. Daniel and I ran through scenes with Jordan for countless hours and he changed them and rewrote them and messed them around and we talked through the logic of everything and it was so carefully done like from when he finds the photos to you know I can't give you the keys was like we spent probably a half a day on cumulatively like just figuring out what we wanted the audience to be thinking and I didn't give a moment and for a director who's also shot listing and getting assemblies back from the edit and doing the million things that a director does to give us that much time and attention is really unique. And I think only comes, I mean, there are some really special directors who can intuit that, but if you're also an actor, you know what that means to your actors and you know, you'll get a better performance out of them if you have that kind of rapport. And Jordan and I had that from the very beginning. He'd send me drafts, I'd send him ideas. And it was this exchange that took place through shooting and into post and Daniel fit right into that. We have very similar kind of training background, stage and improv basically. And he was on skins. I was on girls. It was like a very formative early experience. And so it just became this very happy, easy, cohesive working thing. And I used it to surprise Jordan actually on his birthday. We developed this whole ruse by which I was going to have him come to my house with Daniel to rehearse the makeout scene because I was a little bit uncomfortable being in my underwear and I wanted to work through it. The fact that he wasn't like, what? You're on girls. <laughs> was so He completely fell for it. Right. And I got him to come to the house and the whole cast and crew was in there That's and so surprised nice. him. But I was like, why didn't this send up red flags? I'm on a show that where mostly we just have sex. And right. if you're wearing your underwear, you're like lucky. It's like a fully dressed up sexy. And like, this is right. not. Oh, that's great. But so he was that willing that I was able to use it as a surprise that's mechanism. Great. So Get Out, which costs just $4.5 million. Yeah. Comes out the weekend of last year's Oscars. Yeah. And just typically no man's land for movies. Right. And also that, Logan came out well, like a week in later. The business, so. I don't think it took them even a while to catch up because to a large extent, as you're maybe seeing this season, people get a little infatuated with this time of year. The whole awards process, a lot of people do. And, and I think they just then they play catch up. And yeah. usually there's not much that's worth playing catch up, you know, about that comes out on Oscar weekend in February. But in this case, you guys opened Number one at the box office, made a fortune, great reviews to the extent that it ended up being 
at 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, the best reviewed film of 2017. So for you, I'm sure the weekend was not something, you know, you, you, you paid very close attention to that opening weekend. What was the first time you saw the movie and what was that like for you to see yourself on the big screen for the first time and in a movie that against all odds took off like a rocket? This was what we were all working towards. And I think this is probably what everyone on every movie is working towards, which is what's so strange is like, what is the difference between that working and not working? Uh, There's so many ingredients. And I remember when I read the script, I thought this is an incredibly special movie and it done right could be very, very impactful and big. And that instinct carried throughout, even while we were shooting, this felt really good. But I'd been on cumulatively, I don't know, like under 10 sets in my life. So, and all of them felt great to me. And so who knows? Then I I saw the first screening of it. I was about to go into press for girls, I think. So I wanted to see a cut of it before I did press for other things that I knew how to talk about it. And I invited my husband and my assistant who had worked mm-hmm. was you know she's credited in it mm-hmm. she was there for every step of the way and my family we watched it in a screening room in new york city and when i saw the universal thing i just my eyes filled up with tears because i just it's a real movie mm-hmm. i grew up seeing that logo i couldn't believe that my face was going to come on the screen after that logo it brought up something so visceral in me that goes back to that little girl who just looked up at movies with stars in my eyes thinking like someday I want to do that. And now I was doing it. And I was so proud that the person that was coming onto the screen was complicated and evil and a character that is so weird and unique and singular and was helping to execute this vision that Jordan Peele had that was so, so special and vital. And to my utter delight, when this movie was over, my whole family was super positive I can read them very easily <laughs> and they knew everything that was going to happen and they were still totally swept away by the movie they were on the journey they were reacting vocally throughout and then the first time I saw it in the theater was opening day I went to go see it and that was also amazing all of the moments that Jordan predicted that people would react and in all the ways he predicted they'd react to the movie were happening and it just seemed like he was clairvoyant or something he knew what people would be saying so he gave those lines right afterwards to chris or rod it was like the greatest proof of concept i've ever seen where jordan knew his audience so clearly and knew audiences so clearly loved horror and comedy and psychological thriller and all of these genres so much that he serviced all of them at the same time and the audiences felt the same way and then like everyone just went straight out of the theater told other people to go see it and said, don't let anyone spoil it for you. And then went back to go see it a second time because you don't really appreciate it until you've seen it twice. Well, I told Jordan when he did this podcast, and I think he got a kick out of it. It's absolutely true. I actually heard about it from, I went to, I was invited to like a St. Patrick's Day kind of like dinner at an older producer's house in town who I've gotten to know. It's sort of like a grandmother and said, come by, we're having some people from the business over. And Almost everybody else there was a older woman, and all but one of them had seen the movie and were raving about it. Amazing. And then the other one, the one woman who hadn't, this was now like 10, 11 o'clock at night, was so you know, anxious to now see it, as was I, that we went. At, I went with this older woman at like ten or eleven in the evening to go see, and it she loved it. And I, you know, to come out of the movie and then have the conversation like that. Yeah, you know. And again, there's certain preconceptions about what movies certain demographics will go for or won't go for. There was and no it, telling. Not with this. So, no. 
that was amazing too. And hearing from people that saw it in my life that I know how it works. Like they don't have to say anything if they hate it. You can just never yeah, tell me that right, you saw it. Right. That's super easy. We've all done it. <laughs> right. You just pretend you haven't seen something yet and it never comes up again. Right. But they were reaching. They still are. I still get very embarrassed emails from friends saying, I'm so sorry I hadn't been able to see it in Tanah, right. but I have to tell you I loved it, which is much more embarrassing than just not telling me right. that you saw it. But it means right. that they feel like they had to right. say something. And right. at this point, when there have been so many things written about it, it's almost a year since it came out. It's had this incredible life with words and things like that. Still going. To still get emails from people that are seeing it for the first time. I hope that never ends. I hope I don't ever stop yeah. hearing from people that have seen it or just watched it again for the first time in a while. And I'm reminded of how, you know, it's just from start and it's not yet finished. This experience has been the best case scenario realized. It's just every step of the way has been unreal. Unreal. Well, the last thing is this, and it's just a quick, what we call a rapid fire. Just yep. first thing that comes to your mind. If Jordan came to you and asked you to star in a Get Out sequel, yes. what would you say? Yes. Yeah, without hesitation. If Lena came to you and asked you to star in a girls movie, what would you yes. say? Yes, I already agreed to it. <laughs> Hypothetically, nothing's <laughs> real. Okay. But yeah. The fact that you did Peter Pan live leads me to think that you might be interested in doing an actual live theatrical performance. Love to. So Broadway calls, you there. 100%. For a musical or yes. a play or both? Anything. Okay. I miss it. And lastly, what is actually confirmed for next. So somebody just saw Get Out, they want to, you know, see your next thing, what's what's coming up? It's going to be a second. So there's three things. One is I did a series for Showtime and Sky Atlantic called Patrick Melrose. It's a five-episode miniseries that Benedict Cumberbatch is oh, executive cool. producing and starring in. I am in one episode of it, and that is coming out this spring, maybe? I don't think they've told anyone, including us, when it's right. coming out. So that's going to be the first thing. The second thing is my second movie, which is a writer-director, Richard Shepard, who directed a bunch of episodes of Girls, including the Marnie episode of Girls. And it is also a thriller dealing with a social issue. <laughs> this one's set in the classical music world, and I'm learning the cello wow. at the moment. I'm living in Vancouver because that's where we're shooting it. It's um, in progress now, or you're there early? I'm there early okay. because I'm also shooting a series, which hasn't been announced yet, so I can't tell you what that is. But, it's but that's underway. that I've already started shooting. Wow. And so starting mid-February, I'm going to be on a seven-day-a-week schedule rotation. So I'll be doing five days on the movie, two days on the show, five now, days the on the series movie, is going to be a continuing series, or it's a limited series? It is the tail end of a continuing series, without giving too much away. Yeah, yeah, no, and so I'm insane. I mean, it's, it goes yeah, right no back to the for... work ethic of a type A <laughs> right. Yale student. But right. for some reason, I keep telling myself that it can't be worse than junior year of high school. <laughs> it's going to feel like my junior year of high school, which right. I survived. Yeah. So I can do it. If I can do it for a full school year, I can do it for seven weeks. Hot, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And also, they're really different and it's super fun. I can't give anything away. But so hopefully there will be enough spread over. And it's all super different. Patrick Mellor is saying I'm in. New York in 1982. It's all awesome. going to be really different. Well, congratulations. Thank, Thank you, you so much for doing this. I Thank really you for this. It. You're so always so well-researched and it's, you're great. I Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. America, we are endowed by our creator 
with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.